0: Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Intermission podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. My guest today is Tangent Vector CEO, J.F. Musial. How are you, uh, J.F.? I'm good, Chris. Thanks for having me. So the first question we always ask our guests is, what is your favourite movie or TV car of all time? So...
1: I wanted to, you know, give you something interesting because I I know there's a lot of expected answers, um, especially for someone that makes car films. But I'm actually going to bring one up that many people may not remember if they haven't seen the film. But for me, it's actually the Chevy taxi cab, um, the Chevy Caprice, I think, in Die Hard 3, um, where, uh, (laughs) you know, Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson drive. They have to get from, I think it's like a, 72nd and Broadway down to Wall Street in like 27 minutes is what the film says. And that's like in New York City traffic in the morning, that's that's kind of pushing it. So um, Bruce Willis, there's this amazing scene where Bruce is like, I'm going to go through the park and he goes through the park and he doesn't just take the road through the park. He goes through the park. And I remember growing (laughs) up and watching that. I remember growing up and watching that scene. And like, that is an amazing scene because it's not it's not like it's not a chase. It's a. It's just him driving as fast as he can over, over, over the meadow in, in Central Park, you know. Wow. And it's just like such a great scene. And I, I, that's, I think that's one of the coolest car scenes in a movie. And then, of course, if we're thinking elsewhere, obviously, you know, E24, Ronin M5 or something. But yeah, <laughs> absolutely,
0: Always. absolutely the, the, um, the Chevy taxi cab in, in Die Hard 3. Wow, I've never heard anybody cite that as a uh, as a movie car ever. So.
1: <laughs> which is the which is the point. I wanted to give you something different. So there you go. If you haven't seen it, I I, I recommend seeing Die Hard.
0: <laughs> I've seen Die Hard one, and my co-host will be screaming at his uh, podcast app right now because I've never seen the second, third, or well fourth onwards. But I don't think it's worth going too far down that franchise, is it? Yeah. No. 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 Uh,
1: I. When you think about especially Die Hard, I would only go with a one and two as being like the best films to watch. But three is actually pretty good. I think they went a little bit overboard with it, but yeah.
0: So we both watched and loved Secret Race Across America. And one of the things that caught my eye was a young Mike Spinelli when Alex set off. And a young JF, I think behind a large desktop monitor, filling in some sort of spreadsheet or something. What was the JF life at that point? What were you doing? How did you get involved with Alex? It's actually
1: really strange. So I'll ask, I'll answer the first, sorry, I'll answer the second question first, and then I'll get into what I was doing there. So I actually met Alex at the, I think it was like the 2003 or 2004 uh, New York International Car Show. And I was randomly just, you know, walking through, I think it was the Jaguar booth at the time. And we were standing next to, I forget what car it was. And he was just a, a random dude just standing there, but in this crazy police outfit. And I just was like, oh, this guy's too interesting not to talk to. You. <laughs> so we started, to, we, we started talking and got to know each other and we exchanged like phone numbers and everything because at that time, this is like early 2000s, <laughs> the car scene in New York wasn't really much at that point. You know, I knew a few people and was young still. Actually, to get to the first question, I was working for the New Jersey Turnpike Authority. I was actually a <laughs> a bridge inspector intern. Okay. Um, yeah, I came from a, qu- a completely different world, but I I was still into cars and I was still into car photography. I was taking photos at IMSA races or rather back then uh, America Le Mans series races. So we kind of kept in contact, Alex and I. And one day I think he just kind of remembered that he knew me and he knew I was, you know, in the car scene in New York. And he texted me and he was like, I've got something that you may want to come work on and maybe help me with. So he invited me up to um, a shop in Tuckahoe, New York called AI Design, the shop that built out his cars and forked on everything. And he was, um, he made me sign an NDA. The, the moment I walked in the door, he kind of disclosed everything to me and he kind of fessed up and he's like, I can tell you're kind of analytical and you can kind of, You love the car scene. And at the time at the New York Auto Show, we talked about Cannonball. And he he recognized, I guess, remembered that I knew a lot about the Cannonball, which happened 20 years earlier. And so basically, he's like, I just need help kind of going through calculations for getting the best time to go cross country. And that's where he revealed to me that he wanted to do this. So in the film, when you see me, I'm essentially going through all the different calculations as to which is the best route, because there are four routes you can go across country, all within 10 to 12 miles of each other, all with different conditions, different variables. So those spreadsheets all dealt with everything from weather conditions that we would update to you know, traffic conditions. And I would just basically, before there was Google Maps and before there was any kind of online data, we were going through and just collecting as much information as we could from different state DOT websites to see you know what construction was happening on what roadways on what dates and that whole spreadsheet and what I was working on back then was basically just this is the fastest route cross-country.
0: Wow so you were shooting stills at the time was that as a hobby or was that for any sort of publication or service? Yeah, actually, my first paid gig in the industry was when I was like 18
1: years old. I was taking photos for um, a website slash kind of like monthly newsletter, I guess you can say, out of Texas called Speed Sport Life. And I was covering motorsports and that was paid. And yeah, that, that was kind of like the first real gig I had in the industry doing some kind of artistic, creative
0: thing. And then where did you go from stills to, to video
1: Well, so Alex did his cross-country record. Which is what, 2006? Yeah, 2006. So he went across in 31 hours, four minutes. And in 2007, he released his book. And in the book, you know, a year after the run, he spoke about me. He made reference to me. And when that book came out, there was a guy in the industry who knew Alex and who had read the book. And he saw my name in there and saw what I did based off of what Alex wrote about me. The guy's name was Emil Rensing. And Emil approached Alex and said, I want to get in contact with JF. And Alex put me in contact with with Emil and Emil was building a new company called Next New Networks, um, which was mm. like a like a podcasting video kind of web company. This is right when YouTube was, you know, YouTube started at that time, right around then. Yeah. And he was like, I, I need a producer, and it seems like you're a good producer. And I had no, I, I had no idea what a producer was. <laughs> and he basically explained it to me. He's like, Can you manage time? Yeah, I can manage time. Can you manage um, budgets? Yeah, I can manage budgets. I'm good with money. And then he's like, Well, can you manage egos? And I'm like, I never really managed any egos before. He's like, Well, that's what a producer is. So I took a job as a producer at a company that um, started Fastline Daily. Ah.
0: And as part of that time, I think you were... Uh, did you get back to IMSA doing video stuff for them as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a... We were doing IMSA...
1: Oof. I started doing IMSA stuff 2007, and I did, yeah, pretty much every year up until 2017. So it's, yeah, 10 years of IMSA stuff. It was, the, oh, wow. it, was it was American Le Mans series and Grand Am, two, two separate series, and then they joined back... They joined together, I guess it was in... I don't know, 2011 or something, yeah. So for
0: those who don't remember, who aren't as old as you and I, if I may, what was Fast Lane Daily? What was the the style of the content they were creating? Fast Lane Daily was a daily news
1: video podcast about the car industry. And it was hosted by a guy named uh, Derek D. And Mike Spinelli and I actually, every morning between the two of us, would write the scripts for those shows. It would basically just be everything from what new cars came out, what new car news is there, anything we saw on the internet that was interesting, and then we eventually got into some type of reviews and everything. But it was more about just giving the news of the car industry as fast as possible each morning.
0: And that must have felt a bit like the Wild West. There was no template for that really in the car world, was there? There was not, yeah. There was trying to think of who our competitors
1: were, there was you know at the time it was really just jalopnik <laughs> well true. Yeah, that was that was it that was it, but we they, they were they were written and we were video, and Spinelli worked across the two of them that 's why I look at Spinelli and you know we laugh about it, but like spinelli was like at the forefront of everything in this industry way back when it really was
0: being part of that i 'm guessing you had to be. Everything to everybody. How big was the crew for for this? Bass lane was
1: about five people, all booted. Five people doing the daily show, five episodes a week for forty-eight weeks of the year. So yeah, wow. But but it, next to networks in general was, I would say fifty people, sixty people. It was eventually, and they did everything from political stuff to DIY. They were really the first vloggers on YouTube. Nexu Networks got to the point where in 2014, 2013, sometime in there, YouTube actually bought, Google bought Nexu Networks. And when we talk about the the content team and the content um, initiative within YouTube, it came from Nexu Networks. So that's actually how Drive came to be. That's that's because after Nexu Networks was sold off to, to YouTube slash Google, um, I went off and started my own production company for two years. And then the people I used to work with at Nexu Networks, now at YouTube, came back and said, hey, you want to make some content for us?
0: So yeah, that's how, that's how Drive came to be. What was that like then? It must have been just like a blank, well, not blank check, but like a, I don't know, a golden ticket almost to start up something to to produce content. It was like what 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 was that like for you when you had that offer? Uh it was it was crazy times. I think
1: it was October and trying to make sure I get my dates right. October 2011 is when we actually no, September 2011 is when we got word that YouTube wanted to give this grant out. It was it was a grant. Um it was an advance against ad revenue. So basically X amount of dollars for uh, Y amount of minutes for Z amount of um, ad dollars. If you fulfilled the number of minutes and you got the ad traffic, the money was basically used as a grant. It wasn't a loan at that point. So, September 2011, we got word. That they said they wanted three publications or three brands within the automotive space Motor Trends, Car and Driver, and Top Gear were all pitched. Top Gear declined. From what I understand, it was, so then it was Motor Trend and Car and Driver. And the people within Next, sorry, the people within YouTube at that point, my old friends at Next Networks, they basically said, hey, uh, we have a slot open. You want to come up with something um, and pitch it? So we pitched it within a month. Within two days of pitching it, they agreed. And then basically it was a scramble for a month because I had to, at that point, launch uh, by January of 2012. So we had two months to start building content and get it all figured
0: out, build the brand, figure out what it was going to be called, and <laughs> then go from there. Yeah, that offer comes in. You you grab it and you say, "Right, we're going to go and and do this." Who's the first person that you call to kind of go? We need to do this. We need to plan this out. We need to figure it out. Who do you reach out to?
1: Spinelli was the first one. Yeah. So it was Amel and I who pitched it initially. And then Spinelli, called Spinelli. And then within, mm. you know, the next week or so, I, you know, I knew Farrah because Farrah was from the York from car scene. I knew Alex, mm. from the York car scene. Chris, I knew, but our relationship was, you know, I met him at some races. We, we knew each other. We weren't great friends. But we knew each other. So I reached out to him and that was an interesting story where he... Was basically like um, he was at a VLN race. I think it was like an October, November. It was like the November VLN race at Nurburgring, and he was like, "Look, I'm racing this weekend here. If you're serious about this, let's talk. Let's get on, you know, get on a plane. Let's talk." I called his bluff, and I got on a plane the next day, and I was at the track. (laughs) I was at the track, and we had a meeting, and we we I remember this. We we basically after his race, we we hung out, we drank and came up with the plans for drive on a, basically a, a napkin at the bar. And then, wow. Yeah. And then I flew home the next day and got the pieces
0: kind of going. And so it was really Chris, Chris and Spinelli and I, I remember when it launched, being a car fan anyway Suddenly there was all this content coming through And there was stuff that I I knew Chris from his car videos I knew people like Mike from, obviously from Jalopnik But then there was Mike Musto, there was Leo, there was all these other people How keen were people to join? Were you just sort of getting your dream list straight off the bat with this?
1: No, no, no. I, tr- I treated it like a, any type of portfolio. You, you need to look at it. It was very much a spreadsheet. I know Spinelli said that to you as well. It was very much a spreadsheet. <laughs> and we wanted to have the di- most diverse crowd we could because we didn't know what was going to work, right? So Chris from Europe with a lot of the new cars and the European style of journalism, I guess you can say, the likes that you guys have done so well over there in terms of all your different publications. And then we had, you know, Musto, which was very much the pro touring, the, the muscle car crowd. Leo was more into motorsports and the business side. Um, these were all just people we kind of knew. And by the way, they're uh, minus Chris, everyone from Drive is from New York. And if you actually, if you look broader than that, even Brian Scotto, who runs Hoonigan now near crowd as well it's really crazy how many people from the near car scene all had kind of branched off to do all their own things but yeah 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 we we, we built a portfolio we didn't know it was going to work so we basically said okay we're going to try to hit every inch of the auto, automotive landscape and then see what works after a year and then kind of fine-tune it from there
0: and what was it like during those first few months when the content was going out the channel the brand was just going through the roof i mean how was it being right in the middle of all of that
1: you know, it's kind of like memories you forget. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it was just intense. It was very little that I uh, like. Looking back at it, I, I remember our office. And I remember the the attitude. Everyone was kind of, was very much upbeat. Everyone was like, "We're doing our the dream job." But when you look back at it, like I remember like the first few years. It's really when all my travels like just took off, and I was I was on the road three weeks every month and maybe sometimes four weeks of the month I was just gone and I it was just very so very vague especially that first year just to kind of get it all
0: together what were YouTube like as a as a customer as a client were they just we want this amount of minutes or were they giving you any sort of feedback on what was working any sort of analytics anything like that first year was very clean and simple
1: basically they had their problem with youtube just being full of cat videos and guys getting kicked in the nuts like that was that was youtube we have to remember that's what youtube was in the late 2000s and they they knew they had to change that in order to bring valuable clients or sponsorships or ads to the to the platform so they were strict about the content up front in terms of what kind of content they wanted to see but then once we started going, there was an element of trust because they too, I think, wanted to see what was gonna work. So the first year was very much like, okay, let's see how you're gonna build it. Show us the plan, a lot of scrutiny there. And then once we started, there was very little oversight. But they were watching our minutes and we had to it was more like hours. I think it was like 140 hours that first year. So they just wanted us to deliver the hours at that point, and that's where we kind of got creative at some points. Um and then <laughs> And then every year there was a review. And as we got two, three years into it, they started being a little bit more detailed in their questions, I guess you could say.
0: I've done very little on YouTube, but the one problem I have, and I'd love to know what it's like for somebody who's done this a lot more than I have. How easy do you find it to finish a film and and publish it are you very much a kind of it's good enough get it out or would you just keep polishing and polishing and polishing given half a chance in my position it's it's weird because i i I oversee
1: and i overlook a lot of different uh, you know i manage a lot of different editors and a lot of different producers if it's something I'm working on, no doubt I'm trying to make it as best as I can. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to clean it up and take as much time and I get I, I'm I'm guilty of it as well. But I recognize that there is a point and especially when managing others, it's it's not about being good enough, it's about being better than the rest, but not striving for you know you don't need to strive for perfection for every single video that goes out because i think more than anything else people are looking for their habit right that's why the schedule was so important they want to know it's going to be there and that's more of a connection in today's society than having the the finest film right we knew we weren't making you know fincher type style you know films (laughs) you know this is this is um, had to be good storytelling. The visuals had to be up there. The music had to be good. But in terms of story structure, it could be a little bit more loose. So I don't know if that answers your question, but just kind of giving you a broad. So there, 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 there's like a hybrid model in there. It doesn't have to be the best, but of course we want to be better than everyone else.
0: And I, I guess when you've got more of a flagship project, like the ones we'll get onto later, obviously the amount of care and the amount of thought goes into it because it's less ephemeral. It's less passing through people's streams of a of an afternoon. What was your favourite film from that era or favourite films? Oh, from that era? Oh,
1: uh, back then... There was actually, funny enough, the year before we started Drive, there was the Gosling film Drive. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And funny enough, that was everyone kind of thinks that was where we kind of got the name from and it really wasn't because we didn't actually watch that film until after we started <laughs> Drive. But I remember that being like a great film. That was a great, that was a great film at the time. But I think more than anything else, the the film that we all stood out as we, lo- as loving, as I like kind of like the internet sensation of cool car films um, was Rendezvous, Claude Lelouch's, um, you know, drive through Paris, which was, which was, Really awesome. Like, I remember we always watched that. And then there was also, like, honestly, back then, there was some really good production from people that were, like, on a lot of, like, the rallies, Gumball and all that. Even though I hate those rallies, it was, I remember there was, like, a 2003 film that I think Gumball produced with a high-end car, or some high-end production company. I forgot who it was, but, like, it was really good film. There were some really good films out there that were internet-based, but then, honestly the, the, even further back than that something that I think we all loved and watched was Ronan you know it was that was that was it and, and also also BMW Films let's not forget in the mid 2000s I think BMW Films was was really up there
0: yes we did an episode about the whole series the, the two series they did of those and I'd never seen them before my co-host had been raving about them since ever since I've known him practically they're so good. They're yeah. so underrated. Yeah. Yeah, they're really good. I don't get why they're not lauded in the same way that Seté and Rendezvous and Ronin and, and, and these others are. I look at it because it's because a car, ma- a car manufacturer made
1: them. And they were too blatantly a BMW film, quote unquote, like pun intended. It was it was a little too blatant, but they were awesome. Like for Guy Ritchie to,
0: to do the E39 M5 piece was, yes. was amazing. And it was really funny. Yeah. It was It was brilliant. Watching these then and and having those sorts of influences, not just across you, but across all of them. I mean, the videos that you're shooting with Drive, particularly in the first couple of years... Aside from Chris Harris, how common were the camera teams? Was everybody kind of working together or was everybody kind of shooting their own stuff and, and sending it in? Depending on what project. So, you
1: know, obviously Chris had Neil and, and his guys in the UK, and then we had the crew in New York, and then there was a another production outfit based out of out of LA. And the way the structure of the shows was is that the production crews could move between shows um, based off location. So um, there were three months that Tuned was in production, three months, and then the next three months, Big Muscle would be in production, so on and so forth, right? So there was was a rolling schedule to who was being produced. So people had full-time jobs, but they were working on separate projects. And then whenever we were to shoot stuff... For driven or any of those shows in Europe, we would utilize some of Chris's crew, and then whenever he would come stay aside, he would use our crew. So we were trying to be as effective and as efficient as possible.
0: What was the size of the crew and and the kind of the ethos of those YouTube shoots? Because it seems like it was a bit more than just one guy, a GoPro, and and a mic. But are we talking still kind of quite small crews, quite? Compressed time scales?
1: Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Like like a typical tunes or, or a big muscle shoot was two to three people behind the camera. Yeah, for, for the IMSA stuff, for the motorsports stuff, two people behind camera. For Chris's stuff, no more than two, sometimes three. It was very it was kind of, it was like boot camp, right? It was defined a lot by how good equipment was as well at the time. So we were we were fortunate enough that in the late two thousands there was this boom of new camera equipment that was coming to the prosumer consumer market that was just as good as you know a lot of the professional stuff from a few years ago so it made the job a little bit easier in terms of quality and we can make it look a lot prettier than people would assume it was you know it made it look like it was a much more expensive shoot than it really was and a lot of that had to do with the the luck of having better equipment come to the market
0: and those films that you mentioned was there an element of people going into those shoots and trying to to emulate those or come in with a theme i think i think chris did one with his 512 where he was going all 80s but you know was it and i mean this with the with the, the grace of respect were they intentionally kind of quite vloggy shoots or was there a desire to kind of make them look more expensive make them look more cinematic theme them that sort of thing
1: uh, it is, it's a two part answer. So there was a, there was a mission statement within Drive. Take place, take, take people places they've always wanted to go, but never had a chance. Um, everyone knew, everyone knew what that was like. So there was a design element to how we how we built the episodes to basically, it was intended to show, you joining along with the ride in the sense of shooting over the shoulder of a host as they walk into a room, like that's the perfect example. We intentionally designed the content to make it look like it was a little bit more reality than um, as polished as you would see like on NBC or, or BBC or whatever it may be. We wanted to feel a little bit more reality, but only a little bit. So that was by design to make it feel like that but then to get into like why Chris did the the bread run and the the 512 or or why we had those teams episodes don't discount the element of time right that that 512 film came 3 4 years after we launched drive right so it was an evolution of the brand and an evolution of us trying new things so at the very early days the the mission was very clear make informative educational content but as the mission statement says take people places they've always wanted to go but never had the chance and kind of insert those shots of like walking into a room with a person, have a few of those raw elements. And that's, that's how it was
0: designed um, to feel like that, to make it feel a little bit more authentic particularly looking back as I've done before this watching some of the old content it feels very conversational it feels quite casual it feels quite inclusive that you're not watching somebody presenting you're watching somebody having a conversation with you particularly with with Larry and some of the, the detailing stuff he did God bless the internet that you can have somebody cleaning cars for half an hour and actually make it incredibly compelling
1: Yeah, and, and the thing Larry, Larry I'm going to just say Larry is like Larry is the outlier of the whole thing, and you could look at the portfolio of people and how like Matt went off to do his own thing. Spinelli, you know, still kind of a mix in the mix, but he's he's gone off and done some great stuff since. And you look at Chris, of course, Chris is on Top Gear, but Larry, Larry is the one that I think impressed everyone the most, in the sense of just how detailed he was. <laughs> and I yeah, I know, right? How detailed he was with with his scripts and putting the story together. He's so passionate about making quality anything that it really it really showed in how his shows came to be.
0: And he can also get across quite niche ideas and niche concepts. And I, I'm not a great detailing guy as my car will absolutely attest. But you see him blow out a pad or whatever and you're kind of like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I understand, you know, I, I get it. And I think a good presenter can do that no matter what as I think, as I was saying to Mike, I've been watching um, Matt's series where he's been building his car facility in LA and talking about laying concrete for three hours. And that's been weirdly compelling to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: well, it's also YouTube allows that, right? It's a different type of medium. It's something when we started off, I remember I still remember having this meeting. I had a random meeting in Alex's apartment with someone he knew that was like working with Facebook and just starting their video their video platform. And she was adamant that no, 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 no. The world, the future, everything's about 10 second videos. I'm like, God, what are you talking about? No, people want to be educated. And she's like, no, no, no. It's all gonna come down to 10 second videos. That's everything it's gonna be. And this remember, she I remember her saying this to me like in 2012, something really like you know, 10 years ago, whatever it may be. And I think you look back at it now, a decade later, and I think we were both right, right? Our our position was no, people want to be educated and and have long form and and they're willing to sit through this. Um, and it doesn't have to be like TV where you have to assume that the, the audience has a low attention span. Aim high and they'll, and they'll rise to the bar. Um, but then you also look at Snapchat and Instagram and, you know, the 10-second video is a thing. So it, there's so many different avenues and the, the, the audiences are just being divvied up into different qualms. And, to, and it's also about how you are willing to consume, right? Mobile devices, yeah, 10-second videos. Uh, a lot more favorable, but then you look on, you know, mobile uh, laptops or tablets or whatever it may be, and you see that people want to be engaged
0: and watch long form videos. And actually on that point, we've obviously got YouTube, we've now got a lot of your content goes out on Amazon Prime or goes out on iTunes or wherever it might be. How much of a difference do you think it's made having a global audience for something that you make to buy or consume and and monetize that way versus I'm thinking, you know, 20 years ago when if you had a specialist distributor selling VHS copies or, or DVDs, and I remember going around to somebody's house and they had this one copy of the import thing and you'd all kind of sit around their TV and watch it. (laughs) I know that feeling. (laughs) How much more viable does the global market be able to capture that niche interest, make the business model work and make the content more viable?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, when you grow your target audience, your potential audience, rather, when you grow your potential audience, your target audience is, is relative to that, that potential audience. So yeah, it it becomes much more viable and you, you find much more, you actually find a, a more diverse array of people who, it's weird. You, you're finding more people that are into the same things you're mm-hmm. into, but then have a different take of it, a different angle. I remember when we got into a uh, drive on NBC Sports, we were traveling in Japan and the Middle East uh, through, through Eastern mm-hmm. Europe. It was crazy how many people recognized Spinelli and Chris <laughs> and Farah. It was crazy. But then when you, like, we would hang out with them because, like, oh, of course, we have no, no one else to mm. hang out with, whether it be in Tokyo or whether it be in the Middle East, like, we're hanging out with, we're hanging out with these people that are like, know everything we've made, right? They know everything we've made. They've talked about it. And then they start talking about their interests and we're like, oh, well, you're into some really weird <laughs> stuff. Okay. All right. Like the, like, and I know that has a weird connotation to it, but the idea of like, you know, the car enthusiasts, like, I didn't recognize just how big the off-roading community was in the Middle East. I knew it was it was something but I didn't know that was that was it or like the the idea of 1500 horsepower Nissan Patrols. Like wow. I saw a few of them online but I didn't realize that there were Dozens, <laughs> of do- like dozens of these 1,500 horsepower patrols like all throughout Dubai. I didn't realize, and they're all running race slicks on the street. And it's like, I had no idea that that was that intense here. So it really showed just how broad the car enthusiasm is across the world. But at the same time, it's very, um, very diverse
0: in its, in its own way. Speaking of NBC Sports... What was it like moving Drive from a, an online single episode format to a cable network who I'm sure have a lot more thoughts and a lot more of a rigid format in terms of intros and commercials <laughs> and all sorts?
1: Yeah, that was really hard. <laughs> it, was, it was so hard because it's like, this again, a balancing act. They recognized they recognize that we had an audience and that we were building quality content, but then you know, bringing us on to television. It was like they wanted us to follow a lot of the rules and standards that they had set forth. And then it's us pushing back. I was like, no, you don't understand. This is what makes us different and special. So initially it was a challenge, but we got to know each other and we got to know each other very well. And it worked out, it worked out for the best because we pushed a little bit, they pushed a little bit. And quite frankly, I learned a lot from that process. Those first few years, oh my God, that was like, it was a crazy learning experience. But now what we've done uh, since 2014, yeah, so six years of NBC shows, not only Drive, but Off the Grid and Proving Grounds, like we've done quite a few episodes at this point and we've learned a lot from the process and it's made us better at what we do. But that like that first episode that we produced for them, which was the Drive Monaco road trip craziest experience in my entire life. It, it, it's, worth, it's, it's worth an hour speaking about that because it was just, and it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. And it, actually, I look back at it and it's probably one of our best episodes. But to just give you the 20-second the, the version, like that entire episode was produced, shot, edited, and broadcast within 10 days. Wow. We got the go. We were in Monaco, as I was digitally signing the contract for NBC, but they needed the content so fast once it was decided because we needed it for the uh, GP mm. weekend, the next weekend. So we shot it. We were actually in Monaco Monday and Tuesday, the days, the week before. Mm. So whatever, four, four days before cars were on track, <laughs> shooting our bit. And we left Tuesday, got back to, I actually went to Toronto to, that, to edit that one. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, edited it. Thursday night, flew back to New York Drove up to Connecticut, got the episode ingested. It was ready to go by Saturday. Wow. So it was just a crazy, crazy experience. So that
0: was my crash course into broadcast television. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the other films that I've watched in the run-up to this was one that you shot for VinWiki, where you were talking about the P1 shoot you did with Chris at uh, Yas Marina. Yeah yeah which again it's that analogy of 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 the ducks on the water it, from up top it all looks nice, nice smooth sailing and everything's glitzy and professional but the amount of effort that goes into these shoots i don't think a lot of people really understand just the time pressures and the, the 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 stress that it must put you under. I mean, how do you even sort of divvy up between... I think that's, that was you and Neil shooting on that one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just Neil and I. The two of us. Yeah, that's it. Do you even worry about it or do you just kind of roll your sleeves up and go, let's just get as much as we can and we'll, I don't know, sort out in the edit or we'll just do as much as we can? not always
1: like that, but that was very much a
0: smash and grab kind of mm. Chris Harris type film. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> we will put a link in the show notes for anybody who haven't seen that film, because both the story is great and also the onboard of Chris in the P1 just doing his thing is, is glorious.
1: Yeah. When we watched that footage, that was really incredible. I think it's also... We're pushing ourselves and Chris is pushing himself as well in those types of situations. And a lot of it comes down to track because tracks are just expensive, right? So a lot of the smash and grab kind of shoots that we do, just to kind of give you an example, generally deal with famous racetracks that we're shooting at, and we don't have a lot of time. We literally did our spa segment in one hour. Wow. For an NBC show. And like we shot we did all the in-car, we did all the shots all within one hour. The P1 thing, same thing. That was an hour, if that, Mm. yeah, with Chris and all that. And that was literally, you know, jumping corner to corner. So as we shoot one corner, Chris goes by, jump in in car, go to the next corner as Chris is lapping to come back around. So he just keeps lapping while we're moving corner to corner. It's not always like that. I don't want to give you the wrong impression, but um, when it comes to those types of tracks, it is very much smash and grab. But when it comes to, like, Proving Grounds or it comes to, like like, really detailed segments where we have a day to shoot something we we have scripts we have a shot list um we have we have our ways of doing it but you know it just depends on the circumstances and more than anything else you just you have
0: to adapt and i think that's one thing that everyone on the team is able to do do you think that having a a background where you are an editor a shooter the presenter script writer having an awareness of all those different skills makes you better at being the other ones and being a producer and, and working with the team like that. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Even it even gets to the point where even Chris in the early days was exporting his own videos, right? So every everyone knows how to do a little bit of everything, right? So it, it's very helpful when you get into an edit and you work with your own footage and then you work with someone else's footage. You see oh, wait, I don't need to be rolling that long. I don't need to have that many shots of that because it just slows the whole process down. So, yeah, you. and part of what we want to do, especially within our, our organization when we're making content, is get the editors out into the field, right? So the editors can help the shooters, have the shooters go through their own footage. Like, there's an element of responsibility and accountability that I think we've learned over the years
0: that it, it has refined the process what was the decision path to creating apex the story of the hypercar was that a long-held dream or was that something that just presented itself
1: it was being in the right place at the right time so we were fortunate enough to have access and knowledge and relationships with all the manufacturers with the exception of ferrari and bugatti And we recognized that there was a huge opportunity here because, you know, in the in in the industry, you know, and you speak to enough people, you know, who's who's doing what before it comes out. Right. You see someone, especially on press junkets or any kind of like factory tours or anything, you see the same people around. You see who's around, who's not. You have conversation with the PR people. And we recognized in like 2013, we have a board meeting every year with everyone that has um, interest in in our Company tangent, and we recognize like in the meeting we're like, oh my god, we we have access that no one else has to literally every single manufacturer that's in the space right now, you know, except for Ferrari, uh, Bugatti. I'll get into. But so we took it upon ourselves like, well, we have some cash. We've we've made some money from from some of our other stuff. So. Let's invest in this. Let's do something. We didn't actually know where it was going to go. We just said we should be capturing this, and then once we know we have enough, we'll know, and then we can start putting together a film. We saw it with Koenigsegg. We saw it with McLaren. We saw it with Porsche, that everything was kind of coming together at the right time, and we were in the right place at at that right time, so it just kind of came to be. I remember we were actually, we had our... Ugh, long story we had a, a bo- our board meeting in dubai because we actually had an office there at one point and we we were all sitting around and we're like this is it we have to do this if we don't do this we're, we're a bunch of idiots and we're we're
0: we're losing out on an opportunity because if we don't do this no one else is going to do it so yeah i will get onto secret race across america because we have to talk about that but we've now recently launched apex one so what's the the mission if you like or what's the idea behind apex one the problem we saw with doing the films is that it's such a
1: long lead time that we can't respond to changing technology and we wanted to look we're what we're doing is not going to cure cancer right Our, what we make and what we do is not going to change or affect people's lives but we can have influence right if we can inspire certain individuals to care about new technology, I think that we're doing something right. So Apex, as a brand, when it started with the movie, was just that, like, you know, showcasing new tech and to show that there are people behind this new tech. It's just not, these machines don't just kind of come out of thin air. There's There are individuals that make them. They live amongst us, right? (laughs) We, We, as in Tangent, were recognized that if we wanted to bring Apex as a brand past the films, we needed to have more of an online presence. And that's what Apex One is. The mission, the, the tag, I guess you could say, is tomorrow's vehicles today. And vehicles being very specific in the sense of anything that moves humans. So... And, and vehicles could be a car, it could be a plane, it could be a boat, it could be any kind of machine. So Apex One is really just the web version of what the films are to showcase stuff. If we have a story that we want to tell right away, we can tell it right away if it doesn't justify doing a movie or some kind of video.
0: And I think it's good as well that it's a mix of both the video side, but also the editorial. From like Matt Hardigree wrote about the uh, the singer, it's a really nice sort of landing spot to not just exist on YouTube. It be- it becomes almost more of an editorial platform. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly it. Yeah.
1: You need a little bit of a creative outlet for, for people on the team and it's it's one of that because a lot of the work we do is for clients even though drive and proving grounds and off the grid is is fun it is still you know we still get paid to do it and we are serving a client so um, Apex is ours and it
0: provides a little bit of our freedom. I haven't even touched on the corporate work because looking through some of that again the clips that you've got up on the Tangent Vector website are beautiful and, and gorgeous and indulgent however the complete opposite of that was some of the footage you were working with on Secret Race Across America.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> th- there's well, to say the least. I think towards the end, and you know, no spoilers here. But when you've got a what a, a early two thousands lipstick camera on the freeway at night, it's it's not the best picture to uh, to work with. Yeah. So from two thousand and six to two thousand and nineteen, when the film came out, it's been kind of sitting in your brain, I guess. I mean, I've heard rumours of you having done a, an edit on it previously. It must just feel like the work of, of a, an era of your career. And I want way behind me, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, did, I did the first cut. I, I did one of the first cuts. Sorry, there were several cuts. I did one of the first cuts in 2009. And then there were legal issues, so on and so forth, that prevented us from even working on the film until 2018 so when we picked it up back up in 2018 I opened up the same project file I had been working on nine <laughs> years earlier and there was the film and I'm like okay wow. how do we make this better and it was and I had honestly not looked at it for about six years so I looked at it with fresh eyes and there are still moments I worked on in 2009 with Tom that are exactly as they were from our from you know they're what you see in the movie today was exactly how they were in 2009. And we watched back and we're like, oh, okay, we nailed that section. The sunrise out of St. Louis with the plane, that's exactly as it was in 2009. We nailed that section. Pretty much everything else of the film we changed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there are moments, yeah, that, that – it, 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 I know that footage too well um, and I – I kind of it's burned in my head and I hate it. Um and I I can't watch that film um again, <laughs> to be quite honest with you, because I've seen it so many times. It's it was hard with the footage, um to answer to, to bring up your first point. It was really hard because we had known how long we have gone since that stuff was shot and just looking at the footage and just dealing with it in the timeline, it was really, really challenging. But at the same time it kind of gives a context for the era, right? We'll look back at that in ten more years and say, yeah, that was exactly what that time was like. Pre-GoPro and pre-everything else. So kind of
0: makes sense. And I think watching it, one of the things that I commented on was that you realize there are interviews and talking heads that you've done very, very recently that are crisp and sharp and and, and nice. And then you've got the in-car footage, you've got the interviews with like the, the cannonballers of of the early eighties. And they actually fit together quite well. They don't jar. You don't have this sort of jump where you go from the modern to the old and and back and forth. And I think probably having a lot of the original footage. And were the interviews done about the same time as Alex Roy's run? Was that all sort of vaguely of an era?
1: Mm, they were done probably a few years before Alex's run. And that was not done by me, that was but done by Corey Wells, the original, the first director, first producer of the, the film before Alex was even involved. Those interviews were done, I guess you would say two thousand four, two thousand five. And what's sad is that, you know, a lot of the people that were that were interviewed, they all passed by the time a few years after Alex did his run. And you know, that that was one of the hardest parts of the whole thing. It's like, you know, these are people that have have moved on, their 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 families have moved on, their but their stories were told, so we felt a little bit of a obligation to tell their stories, despite the fact that the footage wasn't so good. But Corey did a great job with those interviews. The way we cut it, we tried to, we tried to make it flow between the new and the old as best as we could. That took a lot of time. Um, so what you're bringing up was actually very much part of the discussion, but, I don't know, somehow we made it work. <laughs> so th- <laughs> thanks, for, thanks,
0: for the, thanks for saying that. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> On a purely personal note, would that film have worked if it hadn't been Alex Roy at the center of it? Do you think that his both his attention to detail, but also the way that he comes across on camera really helped that film as well? Absolutely. Yeah. He he's he's a character, right?
1: he is one of the weird he's my best friend, but he's also one of the weirdest people I've ever known in my entire life. But but he is his ambition, his motivation, his He's, she was just so determined to do this. He had a mission. He was set on accomplishing that mission. And, mm. and I think in his life, he needed that. And I think mm. that was the story to be told, right? Everyone has something that they need to do once in their life or, get, get, or do the best they can in their life. And this was just Alex's example. But I'm sure there would, have been, uh, there, w- there would have been another character. We wouldn't have gotten that far into making the film, into telling that story if it wasn't for
0: Alex. So yeah, Alex had a huge part of that. One other thing I, w- I will ask before before we move on. So my co-host Marty, they had a screening of this when it was actually released here and they had a you know, few friends, big screen and, and they're all watching it. All came away loving it. All really got engrossed in the story and Allegedly, there were tales of people reviewing their uh, average speeds on the way back to their houses <laughs> and kind of comparing notes. Yeah, the, but there was one question that they all had an answer to at the end, and I'm going to ask you: if you were going to do a coast-to-coast run, what car would you pick to do it in? Uh,
1: likely, like a some kind of S-Class or like a, an A8 would probably be the best bet. You want something comfortable that's easy to drive and and you've got the room and space. Yeah. Something with a big trunk you can put a fuel cell in. Yeah, fuel cell, of course, but more than anything else, it just you want to be comfortable in the ride. And you want room to spread out when you're not driving. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man. That, one of the craziest things I've seen was I walked into a basement near Alex's apartment into a garage. Well just randomly. One day to just I was getting to go see him and I looked in and I'm like that's a Monaco-plated Audi A4 diesel in New York City. What is going on here? And I'm like, this, is, this has got to be something related to Alex. This has got to be something <laughs> related to Alex. It's like a, like a B7 A4 Avant with Monaco plates and a diesel. Uh, yeah, it was a diesel A4. I'm like, come on. What is this about? I walk upstairs to see him. And he's there with two individuals. And I'm like, okay, all right. Uh, of, uh, two two European individuals. <laughs> and right. And uh, he's like, yeah, they, they, uh, they flew their car out here. They're going to try to go cross-country this, this weekend. And uh, they wanted to come say hi. I'm like, oh, God, all right. <laughs> there's always, yeah, there's always stories of... We always hear of random stories and people ask us you know can you validate us can you come can you come watch us depart so and I, we Alex and I kind of have this agreement amongst us just each other that we would never do something like that and we're not and we, we wrote it at the end of the film like this was a story to be told uh, we're not promoting it we don't want people to go out and do this I think it's foolish to do it now um, I, I just given the circumstances uh, everyone's talking about doing it now during the uh the COVID-19 pandemic where there's not a lot of cars on the road, this is the worst time to be doing it. And I just, I hope people recognize that that was a story we told from the past and it was dumb and stupid stupid and reckless, but I would not encourage other people to do it in the future. It is, it is a cool story to tell and it's a cool story
0: to think about, but everyone has their Everest, and I, I hope people come up with their own. Great sentiment. Let's just run through a few rapid-fire questions before we wrap up. Sure. I know we mentioned a few films earlier in the episode, but what's been your favourite car movie of recent years? I thought Baby Driver was really
1: good. Um, that was that was a really good film, and quite honestly, Ford versus Ferrari. It was it was named something else th- in the UK, was it, or was it Ford versus Ferrari in the UK? It was Le Mans sixty six in the UK. It was, okay. All right. Yeah, I know they they had different names in different places. Yeah, but despite some of the low frame rate, sped up CGI kind of footage i was not happy with some of that within the film but i think overall the story was pretty good and and it brought more people into the automotive landscape
0: which is important which youtube channel should people be watching other than drive and apex one (laughs) um i have a very weird one and it
1: it reminds me a lot like this is one i watch like Randomly through the day when I just need to like turn my brain off. Right. It's called, it's called ClickSpring and it reminds me a lot of Larry. So ClickSpring, have you heard, ever heard of this? This is a new one on me. Okay. It's a guy who I think in Australia and he just CNC machines and just mills and builds interesting parts Right. Everything from clocks to just random contraptions, and it reminds me a lot like um, like you would see like proto- rapid prototyping either at Koenigsegg or at a Formula One factory. But this guy just does it in his backyard for random things, and the precision, the precision, and he and he does such a good job with all the films. It really reminds me like Larry because he's it's so well scripted, so well edited, so it's so well shot. And I know he does it all by himself, and the content's really good. It's really interesting. So clickspring.
0: It's really compelling watching somebody on a lathe or a CNC machine or something, isn't it? It's just watching the the things come to life. Given a huge budget, what's the film you would love to make? Ah... Something with
1: expedition, something with, you know, going around the world. I think that there is certainly a story there in terms of, you know, driving around the world and seeing all the different cultures you can drive. I love the idea that, like, I can walk out my door right now and the piece of asphalt I'm standing on is fully connected to the same asphalt all the way in California or all the way up to Alaska, all, all the way down to Panama. So I like the idea of, like, you know, you, we, can, we have these vehicles that can go... You know, can go so many different places and I would love to love to tell kind of around the world kind of story but at the same time uh, there's something there but you just uh, we'd have to define it a little bit better as to what that is but yeah something to deal with the like, expedition around the world
0: by vehicle as a complete tangent one of my favourite series is one that we had in the UK which was Michael Palin going around the world in 80 days it was done when was it? I think it was late 80s, maybe like 87. And he goes from London all the way around the world through Japan, across America and back to London in 80 days without flying. So it's... awesome. He's yeah. going on cargo ships and he's hiring cars and driving across deserts and stuff. And... What I really love about it is two things. One is that it's a complete time capsule. Like, Dubai is basically a desert with a tent in the middle of it. He <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> gets Japan, and it's sort of like Blade Runner come to life. But the, the great thing was that Phileas Fogg, it was him and his assistant. And the continual joke is that his assistant is 30 BBC uh, crew with all of these flight cases <laughs> of gear and stuff. <laughs> A little bit different now. Anyway, yeah, that's totally complete tangent. Who should I talk to in the future on this podcast? Oh, Well, actually,
1: we've actually brought him up a few times. I think Larry. Yeah. <laughs> Larry Kosovo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Or, um, quite frankly, I think someone like... Jason Swales, who's more local to you, he's a producer for Formula One. I've worked with him for quite a few years, and I think he's someone that you would find very interested to speak with. But he probably wouldn't want to be. He's one of those guys who hates being on camera or uh, any type of in front of uh, audience type of thing. But um, he's a very fascinating, interesting character interesting i will
0: smile my biggest smile and i will see what uh see what i can do but larry blood larry is absolutely someone you should speak to because he's he's a very good person great great human i'll make sure they're both on the list finally what's the best way for people to follow what you do well uh apex apex one so at apex one on,
1: on uh, instagram twitter myself jf musul on instagram twitter but more than anything else, I think keep watching NBC Sports for all of our original content because we do, we do all the automotive original content. So I'll plug that. Tangent Vector for the production company, which we try to keep, you know, not necessarily that quiet, but something that, you know, that's not really the, the front-facing aspect of what we do that serves different people. But Apex is certainly the place to see all the stuff we want to make. Fantastic.
0: And on that note, thank you very, very much, J.F. Musial. Thank you for having me.